Okay. And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. I okay, Jonathan, get to John. And I want to know, can you save a book that's gone bad at the 600-page mark? If it's a 1,200-page book, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, Even then, that's that's a long walk to take, isn't it, Gary? Well, one of the things, we get spoiled because one of the things that people forget is if you read, oh, Les Mis Rob, for example, it's, it's a 1,200-page book, um, you know, The Count yeah. of Monte Cristo. And, and those things, we think of them as fast-moving adventure stories, which they are, but there's a kind of consistency to them. If a book starts falling apart and isn't consistent, in other words... And I, I did not read the unabridged Les Mis. I will confess to that. I read a 600-page condensation of it. Oh, no, 600-page um, condensation. It's like a mini-book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just zip through it in an afternoon. And But the thing is, it was consistent all the way through. What happens when a book starts taking left turns and starts falling off the rails, uh, can you get it back? That's an interesting question. And, and also, and, what's, what's a reasonable – and this is a really serious question – what is a reasonable inve- investment to expect of a reader? Back in the day, during the bloated days of the 70s, when books swell to a massive 400 pages, and people swooned at the intense length of June, which now looks like a shortish kind of book, really, um, you didn't have any patience for a book that was going to head off into some strange digression. And I guess it's great if the writer really seems to know what they're doing, but how long should you stay with them? I mean, we're talking about a book, and it's up to you whether you choose to name it or not, but we're talking about a forthcoming book with a quarter of a million copy first printing, which frankly sounds, from the description we were having before we I turned, suddenly turned on the podcast, like a train wreck. So, I mean, what is a reasonable amount of time to invest before you just go, stuff it? I have two feelings on that, and the, and the only reason I'm not revealing the title is because I haven't finished the book, and God knows what will happen. Uh, not but there's, there, there, there's the bridge sags in the middle, let's say that, even if it's got a great ending. The issue with that is if you've got a 1,000-page novel, um, there are people who will want consistency, even if I find it uninteresting. There are fantasy series that go on that are seven to 800 pages each, and the fans of those things love them. They want them, they want more of the descriptions of clothes, they want more of the descriptions of battles, and more and more and more is very satisfactory to that kind of a reader. When I'm looking for a structure rather than a series of events, uh, then I expect it to be leading me in interesting directions. So, yeah, so but I mean, are, are we talking I, about the same thing, though? Because, I mean, if you talk about, you know, say, Tad Williams' series, right, the one that came out in the, in the 80s that he's now uh, doing sequel series to, uh, the, the third of the, the first series was immensely long, and they cut it into multiple volumes. But for the people who loved those books, they didn't sag in the middle at all. I mean, they just went on and on and on, and they, they loved being immersed in those stories. And one of the things particularly about some kinds of epic fantasy is that the very enjoyment of them is being immersed in them. And that's fine. But, see, the, the thing we're coming, we were discussing before this book by an author who is a serial offender in some ways in this kind of space, or is where, in fact, the book doesn't remain enjoyable to read. It becomes frustrating to read. You're reading against your own best interest, because after all, it, I mean, 
let me ask you this. With this book, if you were not reviewing it, or reading it to review it, would you continue reading it? Probably not. Um, and this is one of the things, and, and this is this has both saved and condemned me as a reviewer over the years. There are times when I would have given up on a book, and then find out when it's over that I was possibly misunderstanding part of it. That, in a sense, having a deadline and being forced to finish the book made me realize things about the book that I would never have seen had I given it up earlier. The the downside to that is that. If a book doesn't do that, if it doesn't redeem itself in the end, I still have to finish it. <laughs> well, see, this is it. I mean, I, it always used to be one of those sort of popular kind of mythology things that was passed around when you talk to other readers, that the, that the, 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 the point was 100 pages. If you weren't convinced at the 100-page mark, then it was okay to stop. You could set it aside. You'd given it a fair go. Uh, and generally, I can't say I've always followed that. I mean... After I moved out of that phase of my life where I had to read every book that I had because I'd spent all of the money I had to get the book that I had, and, I, and, and now all of a sudden there's no real financial connection for me to continue to the end of it, the 100 pages or even less seems like a much more reasonable uh, investment of time. Particularly, in fact, what I find perplexing in this case is it's a the book you're reading for review is an 800-page book, which at the 600-page book page bookmark sounds like, frankly, a train wreck that isn't worth reviewing. I don't think that's necessarily true, and I think there are readers who will, in, who will love the part that, that I don't love, which is basically the second half of the novel. My concern with this particular book, and it's with many books of this kind, it's very ambitious, and the ambition itself is, is, is worthy of respect. When I say it doesn't deliver, it doesn't deliver on the promise that the first half of the book sets up. In other words, it becomes a different book. To, 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 it becomes a different book stylistically, a different book structurally, and it's it's not the book that you had me at for for the first hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred pages. Um, so to some extent, the problem there is uh, at the one hundred page mark. Sure, I would have kept on. At the two hundred page mark, I did keep on. At the and at some point, I thought, okay, I'm down a rabbit hole now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's one of the things. I've invested in this swamp. I've got to see, keep pumping concrete into it. I'm trying to think if there are books, if if there are any books that I really like that became better toward the end, um, that, that that actually turned around from something that was all right to something that was really spectacular. I'm trying to remember that one of the Patricia McKillop novels, she did this set of wonderful standalone books, which and the only common element to them was the cover artist, Kanuko Craft, the publisher, mm-hmm. and the book format. Other than that, they were fantasy novels. And there's one, and it might have been a book called Kingfisher, I think, where I thought the book was a total mess until I read the, the last chapter. And then it turned out that Kingfisher was what, what she'd managed to do was land the book right on the one spot where it land and make the whole rest of the book seem terrific. Well, uh, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing I've seen happen. I, I, I do remember Kingfisher. Well, it's not a terribly long book. So it's well, not that's it as well. Much. It's a 300-page book, not a 12-million-page that, book. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I used to – when I started reviewing, and I thought, and you, you guys at Locus expect me to get four or five or six or seven books per month. And so I began to think, okay, this book is less than 200 pages. It, I am there. I'm totally there. Now I'm thinking, if this book is 500 pages or less, I'm there. It's short. <laughs> <laughs> 
But see, you say that, but I look at the books, I mean, unlike you, Gary, I don't get sent books for review anymore, which is fine. But when I look at the ones that I've bought, apart from the incredibly deceptive, and it's interesting how it's deceptive, Marlon James' book, all the rest have been in that 300, 400-page sweet spot, not terribly long at all. No, and... I've read novels that uh, that well, the Marlon James book. Uh, Marlon James book kind of s- sets out running and and keeps up a tremendous level of energy throughout, which is unusual for a, a fantasy novel. I think um, the kind of I guess the thing that makes me have a lot of patience with novels. Um, first of all, if I have had good experiences with a novelist in the past, I give them a, a, a lot of leeway. But I'm also remembering something. Uh, uh, Believe it or not, a commencement speech I heard maybe 30, 25 years ago, I don't know, at my university was given by R. Buckminster Fuller, who was famously, in, well, famously R. Buckminster Fuller. And the speech <laughs> went on. Okay, a commencement speech is 20 minutes, you know. Uh, this went on probably an hour and a half. And piece by piece, it was fascinating. He was throwing information at us about penguins, about climate change before it was a thing, about architectural structures, all of this stuff. He just seemed to be completely rambling. He apparently had no notes at all. And most of the people were, well, they weren't checking their iPhones because they didn't have them back then, but they were reading all the names in the program. It just seemed like an incredibly boring speech, but I was paying attention. In the last 10 minutes of the speech, Every strand that he had thrown out during the previous hour came back into being tied up into one spectacular bow, and suddenly the whole hour and a half speech made utterly brilliant sense. And I thought, okay, if he can do that with a speech, novelists can do that with with a novel. Um, I, in a very small and um, unsophisticated example of that sort of thing, I was watching an old Miss Marple movie. Agatha Christie, classic murder mysteries, frequently would throw out lots of information like this. They'd do it in a, you know, 200, 300 pages, and then everything gets tied up at the end. Now, that's just solving a puzzle. Um, some of Heinlein's stories solved the puzzle in a very clever way at the end, but that didn't happen when his novels started getting longer. Here's my question on it, though. I mean, when I, even with the case of the Buck, Buckminster Fuller speech, um, mm-hmm. Doesn't it have to be enjoyable along the way? Well, this is the thing that also occurred to me. I may have been the only one in that audience. There are probably some other geeks like myself uh, who was thinking, idea by idea, this is just fascinating. Let's see what he talks about next. But I thought it was a bunch of disjointed, brilliant ideas. The fact that they weren't disjointed made them seem much more brilliant than they had uh, coming out piecemeal. So, so yeah, it has to be enjoyable, but it can be enjoyable in several different ways along the way. Um, there are stories, for example, that are told in, in different modes from radically different points of view. Um, and each point of view has its own advantages and disadvantages, I suppose. Um, and then at the end, if the thing, if, if all these points of view come together and form a whole, then I'm very satisfied with... Um, with that kind of a story. Um, there was a couple of novels. I'm, I'm just completely pulling stuff out of the air now. There are a couple of novels by Jane Yolen, the um, White Jenna uh, sequence. The Great Yalta books. The, 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 yeah, the books of Alton. Uh, and 
and these were told from multiple points of view. There was there was a legend, there was a ballad, there was a history, there was the real story, uh, there was the myth, and she was obviously playing with different storytelling techniques. And what it did was all these different versions of the story made you really think about the nature of story, which is what she was doing. And, and in the end, she brought it all together, and you realize this is one story which is comprised of all these versions of itself. Now, admittedly, that's kind of a an intellectual exercise, but it made for a very effective novel. Uh, whereas any one of those separate storytelling techniques would have gotten a little bit tedious by itself. Sure, sure. <sighs> well, I guess the the attentive listener to the Coot Street podcast who <clears throat> follows along with Locus will eventually decrypt exactly what book we're talking about. Yes, I'm sure. Uh, so let me ask you, since, since the question of... Uh, how long you should stick with a book is essentially unanswerable because it is. I mean, it's a personal call. Uh, mm-hmm. I find these days with the way my life is, my commitment to any book is very weak indeed. It's very easy to shake me off to go and do something else because I just have to go off and do something else. Uh, but what else have you been reading, Gary K. Wolf? Well, as a matter of fact, this is one of the things that, um, that I'm well aware of whenever I'm reading a book that I get bogged down in. And sometimes I'm bogged, as I, I'll reemphasize this again, sometimes I'm bogged down temporarily and then brought back up again. But I'm always aware of the fact that there are other books there uh, that I, I want to get to. The one I just received in the mail um, a couple of days ago, thanks to, thanks to you and the efforts of people at Locus, was the um, Golang's Book of South Asian Science Fiction, which is apparently published only in India at this point. No, but, did you see oh, really? in the email? Yes, listeners, this is important because one of the episodes that we've been putting off because who has time to plan anything is an episode of the Good Street Podcast talking about translation. Uh, there will be, under a variant title, a British edition of the Golan's Book of South Asian Science Fiction. I'd have to look it up and see what it was. We were, uh, I think it was in one of the emails we got. But there will be a, a variant title edition coming out, which is great. Wonderful. Uh, it's edited by Tarun H. Saint, I presume. Uh, and it fascinates me. One of the things that fascinates me when I see an anthology like this, like the anthology of South Korean, like uh, Ken Liu's two anthologies of Chinese science fiction and a, uh, a university press anthology of Chinese science fiction, is that it's full of writers that I've never heard of. It's, it's full of a perspective that I probably don't know much about. In the uh, Golong's book, I think there are exactly two writers that I even knew the names of. Um, and not all of the, not all the stories are in translation, obviously. But nevertheless, there's a sense with a book like that, as there was with the Korean and, and, and Chinese and Israeli uh, books, a sense that there's a whole new world to be discovered here. And every time you think you've uh, sort of got a handle on what's going on in science fiction in the world, you realize there's a whole chunk of the world, huge amounts of world population that – is reading stuff you've never even heard of. Oh, sure. And I, mean, the fact- I, I find the challenge with books like that and what makes them interesting and worthwhile, there's many things that make them interesting and worthwhile, but for me what makes them interesting and worthwhile is that there are different storytelling traditions that pay off in different ways, and it can take you a while to find your bearings so that you appreciate the stories in the way they were intended. Well, I think that's true, but I think we never quite appreciate the stories in, in the way that they're intended. Uh, one of the things that, um, well, one of, for example, the, this came up in, the, it's come up in the introduction to both of Ken Liu's anthologies. It came up in the introduction 
um, Sheldon Teitelbaum's uh, introduction to Israeli science fiction, Zion's fiction, in the South uh, and, and, and the Korean thing. There's a lot of kind of cultural and historical forces that we can we can tease out of the story, but that for a Korean reader, for example, would be overwhelming in the story. The the immense presence of Japan in Korea's history is something that you and I don't internalize the way I assume Korean readers must. Um, the idea of um, of simply surviving as a country, which is very central to a lot of Israeli science fiction, isn't something that was ever much of a problem with American science fiction. So one of the things that fascinates me about this is that I know I'm missing a lot with these things. And the editors do a very good job of explaining what it is that you might be missing, but but having an editor explain it to you isn't getting the emotional impact that a um, a local reader would be getting from this fiction. No, and there's always a kind of inherent structural issue with books like the Golan's Book of South Asian Science Fiction, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing that you get whenever anyone's trying in a single volume to synopsize anything of depth and co- complexity. You see it in the early attempts to collect together Canadian science fiction, Australian science mm. fiction, any group. And it's the, the editors generally are so – they feel burdened with presenting everything. I know. And, be, and because they're, they're, they carry that burden, burden, and it's fair enough that they feel that they do because in many ways they do, they end up creating an odd kind of a structure of a book. That ha- that isn't necessarily in- almost intended to be read. That has odd novel fragments of things because you have to have heard of this and you have to have heard of this. Yeah. And it becomes this semi-academic or quasi-academic kind of exercise, rather than an uh, the, an exercise in producing the most entertaining or engaging book. And I think I think you can see the bones of that in Ready Made Bodhisattva, the the Korean book you're talking about. And yes. it looks like you can see it in the Golan's Book of South Asian Science Fiction. The introductions are fascinating for me as an academic. The introduction to the Golak's book has 90 footnotes in it. And so it's very academic and it's, it's explaining a great deal about a number of cultures and, and many different languages. Uh, I, I think the thing to do, though, is to, as a reader uh, who's not reading this because I feel like I need to master South Asian science fiction for some exam I'm going to have, it's because I want to get a sense of what the voice is from there. But I'm also well aware of the fact that I have to try to back off from making judgments or making uh, assumptions about this is a story which only could have come out of South Asia. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. One of the things that shows up a lot in um, in Chinese science fiction, which has been fairly well established in translation for several years now, is that a lot of it looks like um, 50s and 60s and 70s American or British science fiction yeah, because yeah, they were reading them. Uh, and that's fine. But I, I was thinking, and you've, you had this issue way back when you were editing Australian science fiction, and I had this issue when I was reviewing that. There's a temptation to say, well, okay, there's something unique about Australia and it must show up in its science fiction. There was, And this is true about British versus American science fiction. There was a study, I think it was by Nick Ruddick, if I'm not mistaken, that argue that British science fiction was defined by its being an island off the coast of a very powerful uh, united uh, European empire. Uh, I think that uh, there was a theory that's being kicked around for a long time that American science fiction 
was defined by the fact that America had an endless frontier, that if you didn't like it, you just moved west. And if you didn't like it out west, you just moved to the moon or whatever it was. So the endless frontier, all of this is right for certain numbers of stories, and all of it is dead wrong when you're trying to make uh, assumptions about yeah. the whole field. Yeah, that sounds true. I guess a lot of science fiction, so, that sounds like a horrible paraphrase for it, but sometimes a science fiction story is just a science fiction story. Oh, sure. Sometimes oh, it's sure. not an expression of your culture. It's not an expression of a political point of view. Somebody wants to write a really neat story, and oh, sure. there's there, there certain things that are that, that have commonalities among different approaches to science fiction. I'm sure I'll see some of that in the South Asian stories. I think that's true, but and I think what, where, where I would perhaps quibble slightly with you mm. is that what might be there actually is something far more subtle than you actually yes. expect. That the, the things that are truly indicative of your country's worldview and its fiction and its science fiction or its fantasy isn't particular particular iconography or particular settings, though those things can be relevant, mm. but more particular worldviews. I th I'm sure that's true, and I suspect a large part of that is what I'm missing in, in 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 reading some of these things, even though I'm trying to be aware that it's there. But on the other hand, as you pointed out earlier, in editing an anthology like this. You're not trying to present a kind of cultural attache approach to this is an orientation to my culture. You're trying to present a, a collection of entertaining and interesting stories. And that balance strikes me as being a, a real challenge for editors of things like this. Well, it would be interesting. And we've talked about doing a podcast and we have to do a podcast maybe at, at Worldcon if we can as a live thing uh, with people in who are dealing with – Produce, you know, presenting science fiction in translation, mm. not about the, the challenges of trans, actual translation itself, but of how you go about presenting a snapshot of a worldview in a book, because it's such a large burden for the book to carry. You know, uh, mm. because I'm sure that whoever, well, I'm sure Taron Saint when he when he attempted the Golas book of science fiction, oh. South Asian science fiction, would have felt that he was trying to shoehorn the universe into a small thing so that he could Absolutely. get it into the so he could get it into the biggest market for for science fiction in the world or one of the biggest markets in the world. Well, one one thing that all of these books have in common, I'm I, I'm sure this is true. Uh, it was in the introductions to both of Ken Liu's books, the introductions to Zion's fiction of Israeli science fiction, uh, ready-made Bodhisattva, and the same thing in the introduction of this. They all say this is not a best of, and that is, it strikes me, the only sane approach because best of, you're not talking about a unified culture in China or a unified culture in South Asia. You're trying to represent a lot of different cultures with different nuances as to their worldviews. You don't think there's also some... Some backside covering in that kind of a statement? Um, I, there is, but I can completely understand it. Oh, oh, I, I understand it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not I critical, mean, you, but I think there's that to it. Um, when, when you're putting together the best year's best science fiction, which you'll be doing, again, now only with science fiction, you're putting together a set of really good stories in your estimation. Um, are they absolutely the best stories or are they representing a lot of different kinds of best stories? Because none of the two stories in one of your year's best are trying to do the same thing with one of them doing it better than the other. 
hopefully. Uh, yeah, look, that's true. Um, it, it's always a judgment call and a, and, a, and a best effort at the time. Um, the extent to which you, achieve, you, know, you succeed is, is judged by the, by, the, um, by, by the reader, I suppose. And of course, yeah. by the awards people who will be handing out the or announcing the Hugo ballot next week, I think. Uh huh. And, and and that's one way of looking at it. And, I, and there are stories that are included in these anthologies. Um, and I assume that the now that I think about it, the Hugo Award for a story can be given for a story which first appears in translation. It doesn't yes. have to be a brand new story of that year. So there, there are stories in these anthologies, the, uh, the ready-made Bodhisattva is a good example, that are not going to get nominated for anything. In fact, they are representative in some cases of mainstream writers doing science fictional things. And to some extent, there's, that's another commonality among these various anthologies, although I'm not sure yet about the South Asian thing, <clears throat> that there is a, uh, another commonality in the introductions is so familiar because they start out pointing out that science fiction was held in contempt by mainstream literature in China or in Japan or in India or in Korea or in Israel. This seems to be a universal that science fiction has had to fight its way up from the gutter in every separate culture. And partly as a way of compensating for that, the books tend to include some names that are fairly big names in the native countries, mainstream names, the, 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 that country's equivalent of a Margaret Atwood or, a, um, I don't know, a, a John Updike. So, so there's some of that which, which is, a pre, is a presentation piece. Generally, those stories are not the best science fiction stories in the collection. Um, and it raises the other issue, of which I find fascinating in these anthologies. More than in American and British and Australian anthologies, you'll see a mix of stories between people who have very little familiarity with genre science fiction and other stories by people who grew up with uh, Anglo-American uh, language science fiction and clearly know their way around it. Good example among Israeli writers, Lavi Tidar knows pulp science fiction inside and out. Um, he did a post on Tor.com not too long ago talking about all the science fiction stories from uh, C.L. Moore to uh, Clifford Simak that uh, had informed his Central Station stories. But there are other Israeli writers who clearly were, would have been a little bit puzzled at having been included in the science fiction anthology and maybe even a little miffed. <laughs> I've wondered sometimes, do you, do you, let me ask you, sort of go slantwise for a second. If something uh -huh. isn't nominated or doesn't win an award, did it really happen in science fiction? Oh, I think that's probably true. Well, the, 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 well. I mean, I think it did happen, but it's. I look at there's, there are things which fall through the cracks historically. We forget that they happened, and you look back and you're, how, how are we not talking about this thing now? And you look back and it's not in any of the awards lists. It's not in anybody's year's best necessarily or anything else. Uh -huh. It's kind of just forgotten. Well, first you know. of all, the awards, the Hugo Awards, go back to 1953 and the Nebulous to what, 1965 or something. Well, I'm looking, um, at, something from 19, so, I'm looking, I'm looking at something specific from 1976. Oh, okay. So it's covered. This is a year where just about every single award on Earth existed. The majority mm -hmm. of science fiction awards existed. Um, and this particular item, when I tell you what it is, 
mm-hmm. you'll, you might be surprised that I only, only ever saw one printing that mm. it's, I doubt anybody particularly remembers it overtly. And yet when I tell you what's in it, you'll wonder. And this is why I get, occasionally I wonder if there's a, a place in a world where we do not need any more awards for an actual expert anthology award. So, okay. Hmm. In, okay, here, here, here's okay. the stuff that's in the book. And then you can tell me at the end of it whether you think that sounds something you think you would remember. Okay. The book opens with your, your faces, oh my sisters, your faces filled by, of light by Rakuna Sheldon. It's followed by Houston, Houston, do you read by James Tiptree Jr. in its first appearance. Oh. Uh, story by David J. Scarl. The Antrim Hills by Mildred Downey Broxon. An essay on Is Gender Necessary by Ursula Le Guin. Corruption by Joanna Russ. Uh, stories by P.J. Plauger and K. Craig Street. And then Woman at the, on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. Hmm. Now, that to me seems like a hell of a book. It strikes me as being really striking. And uh, I'm, I, I should be able to think of the title of it, or the editor of it at least, based on Houston, Houston, Do You Read? But it's... I will just be guessing stupidly, so you might as well go ahead and tell me. The name of the book is Aurora Beyond Equality, and it was co-edited. Vonda and McIntyre and Susan Janice Anderson were the editors. Yeah. And I would suggest most people in the field have never heard of it. To that. Um, No, it's it's, it's funny because it it seemed at the time, was that, wasn't there, weren't there two of those? Oh, uh, I don't think that's true. Okay. I have a let, copy let, of Let me have a look based on my extensive ability to click on things. No, there was just the one, unless uh, Vonda oh. didn't co-edit the other one. Let's have a look. Nopey, nopey, nope. Just one. Oh. It strikes me that that should have been a classic anthology, but again, at the time, what year was it? 1976? It's, it's 1976, the American Bicentennial. Wow. And, I mean, in well, fairness, the stories, several of the stories, obviously, particularly Houston, Houston, Do You Read, and Woman on the Edge of Time, lived on beyond the book. But the book is now remembered solely, occasionally, as a footnote to the, the, the history of those stories rather than the book itself. That's true. That's a good point. Uh, and I think that the book, I, I'm sure, it, I, I assume it was a paperback original. Paperback original from Fawcett, with, with, with an enchanting t- introduction by uh, Anderson entitled Beyond Bems and Boobs. Oh, interesting. One of the things that I think may have been working against it at that time was the bias against nominating books that were mass market paperback originals. Um, <clears throat> but also, that was uh, at, at a time when I think maybe it was too early in the sort of feminist awakening in science fiction for the general readership to see that for what it was. I don't um, know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if you look at the stuff that was around that year, you know, uh-huh. uh, there were other other books of interest, but whether they, were, they necessarily would have stood the test of time better is highly arguable. You know, if you look at, I mean, in, for the Locus Awards, for example, that year, mm. the anthology nominees were The Best Science Fiction of the Year, number five, by Terry Carr, which won. Stella, yeah. number two, by Judy Lynn Del Rey. Future Power, by Jack Dan and Guy de Desoir. Universe 6, Orbit 8, New Dimension 6, Walheim's 1976 annual World's Best, and it's only down at number 14 on this list, below More Women of Wonder by Pamela Sargent, okay. which came out the same year that it gets noted. Which 
it suggests to me that fewer people saw it then. Maybe or fewer people paid attention to it. Well, yes, or, or uh, as probably my dear friend Elisa Krasnistein, if she's still listening to our podcast, would say, possibly because it was cut, uh, filtered through a male gaze. I think it's very likely that most science fiction awards in the nineteen through the nineteen seventies were. Um, the fact that women of more women of wonder was the second one came out higher than that indicates that maybe there's a little bit more awareness. But I'd, I'd like to know now what where where the original women of wonder anthology came out because before Aurora, before Aurora, well, it was it was a few years earlier. But we um, it struck me that that was. In my awareness, anyway, the original Women of Wonder was the first real anthology of science fiction by women that made an impact on me. I mean, there may have been some before then. There have been, obviously, individual writers. But I, my, my guess is that science fiction, if you look at award nominations or locus listings, because the, the locus awards are useful in that they go down to 14th and 15th and 20th place, and not just giving you the... And I think that you might see anthologies and novels like this creeping up on the list throughout the 70s and 80s as the readership of science fiction or at least the voting membership of the Locus Awards became more diversified. Sure, sure. And I mean, and, and this was the year, by the way, where, where, where sounds like a double thing, where Late the Sweet Birds Sang by the late Kate, Kate Wilhelm won most of the major awards for best novel mm-hmm. in, in amongst a tsunami of other material. Uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting that sort of a, a classic now like Floating Worlds by Cecilia Holland was clocking in at 21st on Best Novel uh, rather than in the top small handful, which maybe it might have done you know, later on. So. It might have done it later on, but again, there's also the question of visibility and the visibility of women writers. Uh, one of the points that Le Guin made in one of her essays, the visibility of writers in science fiction in the 60s and 70s had a lot to do with reprints and who got reprinted in paperback and who got multiple editions and that sort of thing. Uh, it also had a lot to do with familiarity. So, for example, a writer like Kate Wilhelm, who was, by the time of Why Late the Sweetbird Sang, was already a revered figure in the field because of, of, of Clarion and of, of, of the um, Milford conferences because of her short fiction. She'd been writing for a long time, and this was... This was one of those things that science fiction writers used to do in the 60s and 70s. This is going to be her big novel. She wrote some other good science fiction novels, but that was her big breakout novel. And she had a lot more visibility than Cecilia Holland, for example, who was known only to historical fiction readers at that time. And it just seemed to come out of nowhere as far as science fiction was concerned. Yeah. This is an interesting little sort of side thing because, as you say, the Locus Awards give you that look at multiple things. Mm Of the top ten nominated short story collections in 1976, six of them were career retrospectives for middle-aged white guys, right? Not too surprising either. Best of Jack Vance, Best of Robert Silverberg, Best of Damon mm. Knight. It was that time. And as you go further down, you bring in the Best of Cornbluth, Campbell, Anderson, Frederick Brown, whatever else. Compare it with last year, where in the top ten... For a start, only one of them could be considered a career retrospective, and the majority are not by by, male, by middle-aged white guys, which is uh-huh. good. Do you think that our fascination with our own past has changed? Uh, this has been a discussion that uh, has shown up again. I've seen it on Twitter. I've seen it on Facebook. 
uh, you know, our apparently this debate about do you need to read the classics to understand science fiction is sort of flared up again. It flares up every couple of years. Um, and the answer is yes and no in many ways. That best of all, all those best ofs happened when Del Rey was just reprinting the best of everybody. Uh, the best of Stanley Weinbaum, the, the best of Raymond Z. Gallon, which somehow didn't sort of last into the uh, uh, imperial uh, library of science fiction. But are we changing what we think you need to have read? Absolutely. Uh, I think the idea, the, 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 the debate that's going on is uh, people finding it really uninteresting to read Asimov's foundation stories now. Uh, and or find there are people losing patience with Heinlein in his later novels. This is something that happens all the time, um, and it's going to continue to happen. I think you could also make an argument that there are a lot of um, energetic younger science fiction uh, writers who maybe haven't read Octavia Butler, or have maybe read only some of Octavia Butler, or maybe have read only some of. Um, well, the one person who seems to be read by everybody is. Le Guin. I guess Le Guin and Tolkien are kind of at the center of that. Yeah. But you know, 20 years ago, I would have said the one writer who would have been read by everybody would have been Heinlein. And I yeah. don't think that's any longer the case. Fair enough. Uh, you know how Joan Walton did her book uh, last year or the year before based on her old blog posts about the Hugo Awards? Yeah, the now, I, don't, I, I, I don't think she went through down to categories like anthology. Maybe not. I think she only did the... Um, and, and fair enough, I understand what the main fiction categories. See, I mm-hmm. think that when I look at it now, and I've not looked at it before, that the anthology category is one where if you were to look at it, we would not agree with the past. Um, very, very likely true. I mean, let me give you an example in what is going to be the worst audio sound you've got from us ages. Um, 1975, you were asking about Women of Wonder by Pam Sargent, the original classic. Yeah. That year... Of the top 12 anthologies listed in the Locus Awards, the winner was the classic Epoch from Roger Elwood and Robert Silverberg. You don't really remember it, probably. I, I've seen it, but it was one of the less distinguished series, I think. At number 10 comes Women of Wonder by Pam Sargent, which probably most people today would pick as being the outstanding classic. You know, it's the have, one which... Yeah. Well, in terms of what we were saying earlier, if we were to look at that list, and I don't know who else is on the list, and ask which of the top ten books are even being read by anybody today, are being checked out of libraries, are being found in used bookstores, uh, without even knowing the other titles, I would guess that Women of Wonder would be at the top of that list. Oh, look, I would bet that every one of these books is out of print. Oh, I'm sure they are. You know, um, uh, which doesn't terribly surprise me, in fairness. They're not. They're 40-year-old books. Um. And, well, this is, you know, that, that's how that, that turns. I, what I was saying was that for a couple of generations, the defining science fiction anthology was Adventures in Time and Space, Healy and McComas, 1946, which stayed in print under the title Great Science Fiction Stories with the Modern Library for the next 40 years or so. Um, and there was a, a, a Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural. So you, you basically had... 40 years worth of people who could go into a bookstore and find that book on the shelf. Uh, then the annuals came out, and they generally died out after a year. Most anthologies didn't last beyond their first or second printing. You can probably name the ones that did, the Dangerous uh, Visions anthologies, 
stayed in print, uh, may, for all I know, are still in print, but they certainly stayed in print for decades. Uh, and as far as the other uh, anthologies, what happened is that uh, some of them were mass market paperbacks that never got reprinted. Uh, some of them, as I said, were annuals that somehow became dated. Although one of the things that I've noticed uh, in bookstores is, and, and I'm sure you've noticed this as an editor, is that I can go into a bookstore looking for anthologies and I will find three or four of Gardner Dothois' years best going back three or four years and almost nothing else. So, so they, they don't necessarily stay in print, but they certainly stay in stock. Uh, some of them do. Some, the, the, those sorts of series can stay in stock. It, it, it's a strange thing, but I mean, I've noticed anyway that uh, books that would be considered a myth list, understandably, are less and less present on your, your average bookshelf. Hey, well, let's swing this around because we've got a little bit of time to go. Unless, unless you've got something else to say about that. Well, I, I, I do want to okay, say, uh, well. ask one other question because you, you made me think about the Women of Wonder anthologies, which opened my mind in a, in, a, in a way that few anthologies had. I was thinking about which anthologies really caused you to revise your entire view of science fiction. Uh, and for me, it wasn't Dangerous Visions. I was probably too familiar with the new wave by, by then. Women of Wonder was one of them. The other one, which still impresses me to this day, even though it has the worst title in the history of anthologies, was Judith Merrill's England Swings SF. That's where I first read Ballard. It's where I first read Pamela Zoline. It's where I first read a, a, a lot of the, the, the British uh, New Wave stuff that was just mind-blowing at the time. And I suspect that's been out of print for decades as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it has. See, the one, the one that blew my mind, I mean, I came across Dangerous Visions so much later in its life that it had already been mm. absorbed into the field. Terrific book, and still, I mean, still a great book, yeah. but not one that's going to shock or surprise or in any way take you aback. But for no. me, it was uh, Michael Bishop's Light Years and Dark. Yeah, that's another classic. Which escaped the worst title in the history of anthologies, Cosmopedia. How? Uh, that was the original working title for the book, and it oh dear. Saved, saved from that by something, I don't know what. Um, but yeah, th th there aren't a lot of them. There often, you know, there's a lot of anthologies come and go, and it really comes down to your personal experience and when you encounter them. I, I do wonder, actually, do you think it's remotely possible to do da a Dangerous Visions today? No, not really. I mean, because Dangerous Visions, I think, was a response... Partly it was a publicity trick on Harlan Ellison's part. He's very good at publicizing. Partly it was, it was a response to publishing trends and publishing restrictions, not to what was being written. I mean, Theodore Sturgeon had been writing transgressive stories long before that, and some of C.L. Moore's stories were transgressive. The idea was to put them together in one place, and you could use words like fuck in them. So, for example, Vonnegut could write the big space fuck. But those were fairly trivial, revolutionary kinds of things. What I think he did was, uh, Ellison did, was he was smart enough to go to an interesting group of writers and get very good work out of them. Um, the, the word for world is forest, for example, which I think was in the game Dangerous Visions. Actually, it's not Le Guin's best work, but was very powerful at its time and was not even that controversial, I don't think, at the time. But it was a, it was a good story that could be presented as being an anti-Vietnam story, which made it look more controversial than it might have been at the time. Yeah. See, I, I think there's no doubt that there's uh, Ellison's editorial eye and his connection to be able to get great stories. But yeah. I, I, 
I do wonder if it was as quote unquote dangerous then as it was described to be. And I think now to achieve some level of dangerousness, you either have to go to such extremes as to become doubtful, perhaps, or there's just no appetite for it. I don't know there's a lot of publishing appetite for genuinely risky work. Um, I I think you may be right, but I'm not sure there was then either. I think um, there's relatively little in those collections of what we would call experimentally risky work or formally challenging work. The idea was you, you could write about topics that you were under the impression you couldn't write about. But if you go back and look um, at, for example, what Seal Goldsmith had been buying for Amazing Stories for almost 10 years before The Dangerous Vision, and all that stuff was there. I mean, she was she was buying Lafferty. She was buying uh, Ballard. She was uh, buying uh, Le Guin. She was buying stories by people that, uh, you know, were, were oddballs. So can you can you – present an anthology today as being revolutionary in any sense uh i think it would look i think you would look foolish trying to do it actually but i also think you know sort of in the 70s there were publishers like savoy house who would Mm -hmm. publish out on the edges of the mainstream kind of work that was quite challenging and i'm not sure i can think of a lot of places that would choose to do that today um it'd be hard to say are you talking about doing Novels or anthologies? Hmm. I, I, I'm not aware of too many novels that would be considered unpublishable today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, you I've might be across, right. I've, I've come across work that I think is probably unpublishable to, to today or close to it without going into the details of it um, uh-huh. that has merit, you know. Oh. I mean, there's work that's unpublishable because it's always going to be unpublishable. That's a separate kind of thing. But yeah, the well, idea, sure, that, sure, uh, yes. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess my point is being unpublishable. Okay, but at the time that Ellison was putting together these stories, if you look at the markets that were available to science fiction writers, uh, there were relatively few of them. There were three, three or four major magazines. If you were very, very lucky, you could get into Playboy. And that was about it. Saturday Evening Post was pretty much gone by then, which meant that if you couldn't get your stories into these three or four markets, they were transgressive stories, and here we'll put them in this transgressive anthology. Yeah. Today, there are so many more markets. I, I find it hard to imagine a story that couldn't find a, 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 a good, well-written story that's competent in all the ways we consider a story to be competent that wouldn't find a home somewhere. I think the gray area exists in the area of offense. If, yeah. if a publisher is unsure how, whether something will offend, quite often I can see them choosing to not take the risk. Um, it's, it's in the gray areas. It, 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 that's, that's definitely a gray area, and it's slightly a slightly different um, issue from Literary quality or literary transgressiveness. I, I, I see what you're saying. It's possible to write a uh, well-done story which is morally offensive to a good chunk of the audience uh, and probably which is morally wrong. Don't ask me for examples, but they're probably out there. Um, and to, to that extent, I can see somebody being cautious about a story like that. But my question is um, – 
there's a question about the division between art and rhetoric. If a story is written in order to be offensive or to raise issues like that, um, more than it's written to be a competent story, because you can have a competent, well-written story that raises very uncomfortable issues, uh, then I think I'd, as an editor, which I'm not, I would I would be a little bit squeamish about publishing a story whose main quality was its offensiveness. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I, I understand that completely. Um, I, I just think that there's a a desire to have a certainty about the eff- the effect it's going to have, and so you know, it's, it's it's a gray area. But look, we're slowly moving towards the end of our our hour, which, given my schedule, is remarkable. It's one of the reasons why I turned mm-hmm. the podcast on so quick. And I do apologize to everybody for not having connected my microphone properly. So, this is kind of garbage in terms of sound from my end. So, my apologies. <clears throat> there, 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 there were a couple of muted sounds from your end. Yeah. So, but 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 people are used to. People don't expect competence from us. I was filtering I said, that stuff out before. At my well, end. I, I, no, but I know you were, but I never mind. It's, it's, <laughs> everything, you, everything you said was perfectly understandable from my end. Uh, well, let me tell you, it. there's one tr- anyway. book that I'm reading right now mm-hmm. to change topics. Mm-hmm. There's one because we're gonna this, this, the notes for this episode are gonna be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading the Ten Thousand Doors of January from Alex E. Harrow, her debut fantasy novel. That sounds out fascinating. In September. And there is a galley of it on its way to you, Gary. Excellent. And I am three or four chapters into it and mm-hmm. absolutely loving it so far. So far, it's really delightful. Sorry. Well, let's hope that keeps up for the rest of the book. Hey, guess Sometimes. what? All, all good thoughts to Alex, who wrote a 300-page book, so it's not much of a risk, Gary. Well, that's the thing. You know, if you're 200 pages into a 300-page book, it's pretty much difficult to tank it at that point. <laughs> and I, I, I've done that. I've read books, which I've read books. I've seen movies. I will give you an example uh, without a spoiler. A movie I saw this weekend, which is actually a flat-out science fiction movie, um, is is Us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Jordan Peele film, and he punts the ending. Uh, it's, it's not giving much away, but it's something that you could see. About ready to happen, I think, um, way back with the first film, Get Out, which is that he loves his metaphors. And there's a point at which he loves his metaphors more than he loves his plot at the end. (laughs) But I don't care because it was such a good story. Um, And and, and it worked. In other words, so he sold me on the movie and I I didn't mind sort of the, 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 the thesaurus that came at the end of Symbols. Fair enough. Well, I haven't seen us. I don't know. I'm like you. It's a scary one, isn't it, Gary? It's scary. It's scary in genuinely disturbing ways, uh, and without much in the way of classic horror film gore. <sighs> well, I have enormous manuscripts to edit, Gary. I, well, know, I have, that, 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 that's my coming week. <laughs> I understand that, and I'm going to well, try I'm and gonna... fit in more episodes of the podcast because I've fallen behind again. Well, I think we need to we, we need to start oh. talking about the translation issue. We we do but, because we really want to talk about that. But I just realized there's something that we haven't mentioned, Gary, because it's just uh-oh. occurred to me because we have so the I keep saying that what I really would like for the podcast above and beyond all else is a producer. Mm-hmm. If you're out there, if you mm-hmm. love the podcast, drop us a line. Hey Gary, happy episode 350. Is this episode 350? This is episode 350. I'm 
appalled. <laughs> Who even knew? I well, I, I knew we were past three hundred, but my God, that's that's in in, in dog years. That's a, a millennium. <laughs> yeah, it, it, now, it now takes as long as it feels. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, congratulations. Thank you. I think three hundred and fifty hours of this. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 other, and any any day now we're going to start making sense. No, 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 no. It's going to be the same waffle, um, maybe in Dublin. I actually have to finalize my plans for Dublin, but maybe in Dublin. Um, if I had endless spare time, possibly even in Seattle, but I think Seattle's pretty unlikely, frankly. I think Seattle's going to be insane. Um, mm. And if I don't actually have a you – know, having overcommitted myself to the extent that I have this year – and I'm looking at my to-do list as I'm talking to you. It's like sitting in, uh, up in the window on my computer. I'm mm. sort of like, I have no idea how I'm going to get through to July. But well, I, and from my point of view, I'm retired and simply enjoying doing whatever I want whenever I want. Yeah, it, shut except, up, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> except Maybe you should become the producer of the, the Good Street Podcast. You've got time. I've got. I don't know how to do that. If I knew how to do that, I would have been doing it by now. Ah <laughs> uh, well. You well, realize look. if we hire a producer, that means they can fire us and replace us with copies of ourselves. Like that in sounds us. great. I'm ready to listen huh. to the Crude Street podcast with with you know AI clones. You know that's fine. Mm-hmm. Who would you replace us with as hosts? If you're going to re- do a new Crude Street podcast. And call it something snappy like the new Kutsuri podcast. Who would you replace us with? I don't want to say that because I'm afraid that those people are already doing their own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That might be (laughs) (laughs) Probably better produced. Probably with with like like theme music, right? Probably with actual theme music, right? Mm -hmm. And the whole thing. Yeah, that, that, that would be right. But they're really interesting people. Hey, did you see? I know we're nearly done, and this is episode 350, and I'm bouncing around now, like, whatever. Did you see the discussion around Fonda Lee's Twitter post about yes. fantasy books on bookshelves? Mm hmm. And now I thought it was fascinating. First of all, met Fonda Lee. Fonda Lee is wonderful. And not only mm-hmm. is she wonderful, but she's so much smarter than I am. That's ridiculous. She's and so much really better qualified. Like- I think she's I think she's like a Nike marketing executive or something. Mm-hmm. In amongst everything else. It was something like that, I think. And huh, so she makes this pretty reasonable observation that drove somebody mad because it's the internet and everything drives everybody mad. That is it in the best interest of readers to have or writers, to have almost exclusively multiple titles, m- multiple copies of t- the same titles by a few r- writers flooding out um, bookstores. Mm-hmm. And, like I, like, I understand part of it, and she understood the practicalities of it, that obviously uh, chain stores are going to deliver what uh, they think their, their customers want, even though that's a self-fulfilling thing. But certainly, you get the feeling, in fact, no, I, I get it here. You go into a bookstore now, you'll remember those you used to go into them, Oh, yeah, I've got one down the street here. Do you go into it? Um, Actually, only once in a while to look at the shelves pretty much to see what Fonda Lee is talking about, what books are on the shelves. Yeah. And occasionally look on the back. Basically, you get get 400 shelf feet of Tolkien, 300 Mm -hmm. shelf feet of 
uh, George Martin and some other bits and pieces. Uh, and it's true here. It's like, you know, I've been at times when like the entire science fiction section in a local bookstore seems to be mm-hmm. you know, Heinlein, Martin, maybe Al Reynolds or something. That's it. And other writers' books just don't get out there. And I think it is a real problem. And I, I thought it was interesting that what was a pretty reasonable point was so manifestly taken out, out some way other than it was intended. Absolutely. And it's, 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 I mean, Twitter is, is nothing if not a map of misreading. And the misreading of her post was simply to, to view her as attacking the dead white males who were taking up shelf space as though they were somehow doing that themselves. And I, as, as she acknowledged, and as anyone who's ever even worked in a bookstore, in a, the, the, these decisions are not made by the authors and not necessarily made by the publishers. They're made by booksellers for obvious reasons. Uh, things will move. I mean, Tolkien probably moves copies every year more reliably than anybody else does, and George Martin moves copies. And that means that with a limited amount of space, newer writers have a hard time getting on the shelves. One response to that, I didn't see it on Twitter, but uh, but one possible response to that is that's partly what independent bookstores are for. They can yeah, make right. individual decisions. You but know, even they can, there's, always, also, there's they, always that weird thing, though, Gary, and I mean, I found this back when I used to work in a record store, right? If you get copies of anything, right, doesn't matter what it is, anything at all pretty much, if you put five copies on the shelf, you might sell one. If mm-hmm. you put 100, you'll sell 10 or 20. It's just how it plays out. But you will not sell 10 or 20 of something you put 20 copies of the shelf on. You mm-hmm. sell three or four because it's about presence. I remember back in the day when Stephen Donaldson actually dominated the commercial world here in Australia, and you would go in and you would see walls, and I, I'm not exaggerating, walls mm. of Thomas Covenant. It would, all, it would be all that it would be. You know, there would be, you know, like at that stage I think there were seven of the books out, no, six, five of the books out, and mm. it would be three rows of book one, three rows of book two, three rows of book three, just walls of it, and that helped it sell, you know. And, and and the other thing that helps sell, which which uh, she mentioned in, in in the Twitter post also, is who gets a face out book as opposed to a spine out book. Yeah, and it's true. And one of the things I do know is because I'll be looking for books by my friends, and it may say something about many of my friends, but you know they will not have face out books. You will have to find their book in alphabetical order, and you're not sure whether it'll be in the fantasy or science fiction section because God knows who shelves these books. And so it's very frustrating to find – and sometimes I will take a book by a friend and put it face out see if yeah. it, just to see if they'll notice it. I, I, I would do that with my own books if I had any of my own books that ever showed up in bookstores. But by and large, I do think that she was very unfairly attacked for, for oh, yeah. reasons that had nothing to do with the, the, the quality of the fiction or respect for dead writers or the fact that uh, Surprise, you know, The Song of Ice and Fire is a bestseller. I think everybody acknowledges that. But uh, the reality is that every writer, and this is not just true of genre writers, is competing with a bunch of dead writers. Every mystery writer is competing with Raymond Chandler and Agatha Christie. You know, every literary writer is competing with Jane Austen and Faulkner. And the fact is that Jane Austen probably over decades sells more works of fiction than anybody other than bestseller sure. uh, uh, New York Times bestseller writers. And even so, and new stuff, stuff there's more than a, anyone can read. Well, the point is that's not that's not Jane Austen's fault, and it's certainly not 
uh, a flaw in Jane Austen's work that it, it sells that well. But it's a fact that, you know, the classics, if you look in the literature section, it's the same thing on yeah. a larger scale. Sure. The classics take up a disproportionate amount of space, partly because they're going to be students sent in to buy these things or parents are going to buy things for their uh, kids and so forth. So so it's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing. I go back to my point that independent bookstores tend to make much more individual selections of books that want, they want to promote and tend to do a better job of it than chain stores do. So very quickly <clears> – <throat> Since we're at the end of the podcast, I'm calling it the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Your reading year to date, it's almost April. Going well? Mm-hmm. Not going well? It's going well. I mean, uh, the one of the, uh, the the last collection of short stories I read was Ted Chang's Exhalation and other stories. And any Rubbish. Total rubbish that obviously was. Yes, it clearly is. The, the guy clearly... Hey, he's getting... He's getting really prolific, though. This is the good, the good news. The good news is that Ted Chang is now out of control. The new book has nine stories, and the other one only had eight. Whoa. So, wow. Sit down, Ted. Just just calm yeah, it on back. Yeah. Oh, no. It's a second book in since, what, 1997. <laughs> right. Right? Uh, and, this one, and this one, because everyone sees it, there are, like, two new stories in it, aren't there? There are two new stories in it. There's one story in it, which I believe was only published as a, a small book by Subterranean, the life cycle of software yeah. objects. Uh, so there are, for people who have only been familiar with Ted Chang's short fiction, there are maybe three stories that people, three or four stories that people won't have seen before. Five of, the, five of the nine stories were in year's best anthologies. So if people have already read them, it's partly your fault. There you go. Well, on that cheery note, 350 <laughs> times, Gary. Goodness gracious, I never thought we'd have done that. Well, let's let's try for 351 and hope nothing happens between now and next week. <laughs> Jeez, <that's laughs> us. Hey, look, we might make 352 by the end of the year. It could be. It could be. <laughs> okay, until then, take care, my friend. And until then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast number 350. Number 350. Good God.